Section 57 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Edwards. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Case Studies, Chapter 11, Part 4. Studies of Environmental Risks and Safety The Green Run and the Radiological Warfare and RALA programs were by no means the only government-sponsored experiments in which radioactive materials were intentionally released into the environment. Scientists undertook a wide variety of studies designed to understand the risks of environmental exposure to radioactive materials. For example, Tests of experimental nuclear reactors at the National Reactor Testing Station in Idaho and the National Reactor Development Station in Nevada were designed to simulate possible accident scenarios under carefully controlled and isolated conditions. Similarly, tests at the Nevada test site were designed to understand the possible effects of an accidental non-nuclear explosion of a nuclear weapon. In addition to intentional releases designed to test the safety of nuclear machinery, safety was also a concern in studies designed to understand the fate of radioactive materials in the environment. Many of these studies simply took advantage of releases that occurred accidentally or were incidental to other projects. In 1943, studies of the exposure of salmon in the Columbia River to the radioactive effluent from Hanford's reactors set in motion the growing and largely public science of radioecology. The environmental analog of radioisotope tracer studies designed to better understand the workings of the human body, these studies were intended both to follow the course of radionuclides released into the environment during nuclear weapons production and testing, and use radionuclides to trace the basic workings of the environment. The deliberate release of very small quantities of radioactive material provided the opportunity for more controlled environmental study than those studies that simply observed radionuclides already released into the environment. The advisory committee did not attempt to survey the entire field of radioecology, but we have reviewed the following examples in some detail. Project Chariot. Project Chariot was a component of Project Plowshare, the brainchild of physicist Edward Teller, who helped develop the first hydrogen bomb. Plowshare arose in the late 1950s in response to public protests against atmospheric nuclear testing and was intended to demonstrate that clean nuclear explosives would provide safe, peaceful uses of atomic energy. In 1958, Teller selected a site in northern Alaska for Project Chariot, the proposed excavation of an Arctic seaport using a series of nuclear explosions. The site chosen was near Cape Thompson, roughly 30 miles from the Inupiat Eskimo village of Point Hope. This proposal, which was the subject of public debate, died in 1962 in the face of popular opposition. However, extensive observations of the Alaskan ecosystem were undertaken between 1958 and 1962 to provide a baseline for comparison with results of the planned nuclear explosions. These observations led to the first awareness of the environmental hazards of cesium-137 from distant, primarily Soviet, 
atmospheric nuclear tests and led to a series of studies on cesium in the food chain and in humans. Most of the environmental studies in Project Chariot were purely observational, but one series of studies involved the intentional release of small quantities of radioactive materials, a total of 26 millicuries of iodine-131, strontium-85, cesium-137, and mixed fission products. In several studies, researchers from the U.S. Geological Survey spread radioactive materials on the surface of small plots of land and observed their spread across the surface when sprayed with water to simulate rainfall. In another, researchers placed mixed fission products in a small pit and measured their transport through the subsurface clay and in yet another, researchers studied the spread of radioactivity in a creek contaminated with radioactive soil from Nevada. After these studies, the contaminated soil was removed and buried in above-ground mounds. Although this was a technical violation of regulatory requirements, an AEC memo expressed general satisfaction with the cleanup, noting that burial in the permafrost would have been too difficult. After the initial cleanup, the site remained dormant for 30 years until 1992 when a researcher discovered correspondence between the AEC and USGS about the tracer studies. In response to public concerns, the Department of Energy undertook to clean up the mound's potentially contaminated soil. A survey indicated no externally observable radioactivity and very little, if any, measurable radioactive material was believed to remain. In 1993, the mounds of soil were removed for disposal at the Nevada test site. Caroline Cannon, an Inupiat Indian resident of Point Hope, told the advisory committee at its public meeting in Santa Fe, I have lived in Point Hope all my life and eaten the food from the sea and the land and drank the water of Cape Thompson along with the others. I have to wonder about my health, what impact the poison on the earth will have all throughout my lifetime, emotionally, physically, and most of all for my children and my grandchildren. Although the risk to the population was minimal, residents still wonder whether other experiments might have occurred and remain secret. Here again, government secrecy in the past is undermining government credibility in the present. How much comfort are Ms. Cannon and others like her able to take in reassurances from the government about risks to future generations, a government that they perceive unjustifiably kept them in the dark? Controlled radioiodine releases. A small number of intentional releases involved the deliberate exposure of human subjects to trace quantities of radioisotopes in the environment. The most systematic of these were five of the roughly 30 Controlled Environmental Radioiodine Tests, CERT, carried out at Idaho National Engineering Laboratory, INEL, between 1963 and 1968. Small quantities of I-131 were released into the atmosphere under carefully monitored meteorological conditions. In one study, seven volunteers drank milk from cows that grazed on the contaminated pasture. The quantity of iodine was measured carefully in the air, on the grass, in the milk, and later in the volunteers' thyroids, 
allowing a quantitative reconstruction of the full environmental pathway. The maximum exposure among these volunteers was reported as 0.63 rad to the thyroid, nearly a factor of 50 below the contemporary annual occupational exposure limits. In four other studies, a total of about 20 volunteers stood downwind at the time of the release. Their exposures, from inhaling I-131 in the air, were much lower. Apparently, all these volunteers were members of the INEL staff. Measurements of the radioactivity in their thyroids provided a quantitative reconstruction of the inhalation pathway. Studies similar to the CERT took place at Hanford in 1962, 1963, and possibly in 1965. The 1963 Hanford test involved human volunteers from Hanford's health physics staff, as did studies of iodine uptake from milk. The subjects in all these studies are referred to as volunteers in the relevant documents. No evidence is available bearing on what these subjects knew or were told about the experiments or the conditions under which they agreed to participate. The subjects were all staff members of the agency or its contractors conducting the research. The documents suggest that these staff members included knowledgeable individuals who participated in these experiments in the spirit of self-experimentation. Reconstructing, Comparing, and Understanding Risks Thus far, we have only briefly characterized the risks associated with the intentional releases reviewed in this chapter. Just how risky were those intentional releases, and how much of this risk materialized? Although these questions cannot be answered with certainty, the answers can be approximated. Actual and suspected failures to respect public health in the environmental practices of the past have often led to efforts to reconstruct the basic facts and estimate the likely harm from environmental releases of radioactive materials. This process of environmental dose reconstruction has become an essential part of informing the public. The task of estimating past environmental exposures to radioactive materials is a complex, multi-step process. The first step is to collect data from historical records on the amount of material released. The second is to use records on weather, actual measurements of radioactivity in the environment, and computer models to reconstruct where this material went. The third step is to estimate how this distribution of material might result in radiation exposures to humans. Finally, these exposure estimates can be combined with mathematical models of radiation risks to estimate the resulting harm to people who were exposed. Radioactive materials released into the environment can affect humans in two ways. First, they can be a source of radiation external to the body, beta radiation which affects the skin or more penetrating gamma radiation. Second, they can enter the body from contaminated air, food, or water and provide an internal source of radiation. Of these environmental pathways to radiation exposure, the food pathway is by far the most complicated. Radionuclides can enter the food chain at many points through contaminated air, water, and soil, resulting in contaminated fruits, vegetables, meat, and dairy products. The hazards from environmental exposures to radionuclides differ in important quantitative ways from those due to medical procedures or participation in biomedical research. 
The natural dilution of materials in the environment means that individual exposures, even from massive releases, are often quite small. Although the chemical and biological processes involved in exposures through the food chain can lead to effects that counteract this dilution. Finally, many more people may be exposed, with exposures that vary widely from person to person. Because individual exposures are generally too low to produce any acute effects, the main form of injury possible from environmental radiation exposure is cancer, which may occur many years after the exposure, and the number of cases attributable to such exposures can be expected to be relatively small. Evidence of cancer from exposure to radiation is difficult to separate out from other possible causes of those injuries. For the intentional releases discussed in this chapter, it is essentially impossible. Instead, we must rely on models of risk based on studies of other human radiation exposures. Increased cancer rates among Japanese survivors of the atomic bombings provide the basis for most current radiation exposure risk estimates. Health effects from the massive accident at Chernobyl and from other sites in the former Soviet Union should also be detectable and eventually may improve our understanding of the risks of chronic, low-level radiation exposure. The uncertainties in these scientific analyses are a major component of the uncertainty in risk estimation from environmental exposures. In addition to individual exposures, it is important to know how many people were exposed. The population dose, obtained by adding up the individual exposures, provides a measure of the overall risk to the exposed population. According to models used by the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, we can expect about one induced fatal cancer for every 1,940 person rem of radiation exposure. While the risk to any one person may be small, the exposure of a large population can lead to a statistically significant increase in the number of fatal cancers, but it will be impossible to attribute any particular cancer to radiation exposure. The committee was not equipped to reconstruct historical doses from intentional releases, but can make some rough judgments based on more formal analyses performed by others. The Green Run The Green Run took place after years of routine emissions of radioiodine from the wartime and early post-war operations of the Hanford plant and it added a relatively small amount to the overall risk. See the accompanying Table 1, Magnitude of Radioactive Releases. In 1987, the Department of Energy established the Hanford Environmental Dose Reconstruction, HEDR, project to provide an estimate of all the exposures that might have resulted and continues to refine its estimates of the resulting radiation doses to people. These exposures primarily through the food chain, may have produced a measurable excess in thyroid disease. A follow-up study of the exposed population is attempting to ascertain whether excess thyroid disease can indeed be seen. The Green Run represents only about 1% of all the radioiodine releases from Hanford. Fortunately, for most nearby residents, it occurred at a time of year when people were not eating fresh garden vegetables or drinking milk from cattle grazing in open pastures. The estimated radiation dose to members of the public from Hanford's operations for all of 1949 probably did not exceed 600 millirad to the thyroid.
and doses 10 times lower were more typical of the most highly exposed population. The committee estimates that the green run may have increased the expected number of fatal thyroid cancers in the exposed population by 0.04 within broad error margins. This means it is highly unlikely that even one person died as a result of the green run. A larger incidence of benign thyroid conditions is likely, but there is no evidence to support a connection between the intentional releases and any other possible medical conditions. Radiological Warfare No formal dose reconstruction has been done for the radiological warfare field tests at Dugway. Although the radioactive tantalum used in these tests does not concentrate in the food chain, because of its long half-life, there may have been many opportunities for people to be exposed. Weather and vehicle traffic could have spread some of the contamination outside the proving ground, and even repeated low-level exposures to uranium prospectors or hikers who regularly wandered into the site may have been possible. Whatever public health hazard the RW tests at Dugway may have posed at the time, the radioactive decay of the tantalum caused the risk to dissipate over time. By 1960, no more than a few millicuries of tantalum remained, dispersed so widely that by this time it posed no conceivable human or environmental hazard. RALA Tests Los Alamos's 1995 report on the history of the RALA test program contains basic information necessary for an environmental dose reconstruction, including the amount of radioactivity released, a rough indication of the amount of high explosive used in each test, and meteorological and fallout data where available. Advisory committee staff reviewed the process by which this information was assembled and reported that the historical reconstruction appears to be a reasonably accurate representation of what actually occurred. Los Alamos is using this historical information to produce an environmental dose assessment, which it is providing to the state of New Mexico and plans to submit for publication in a peer-reviewed journal. The committee was not in a position to judge the adequacy of the dose reconstruction, but the sources, methodology, and results will be available for review by outside experts. Individual exposures from the full series of RALA tests were somewhat higher than for the single release of the green run, and the exposed population was somewhat smaller. According to a preliminary dose reconstruction by the Human Studies Project team at Los Alamos, the total dose for someone living continuously in Los Alamos for all 18 years of the program was roughly 110 millirem. With a population of approximately 10,000 in Los Alamos County, 0.4 excess cancer deaths might be expected. The average dose would have been 60 millirem for someone living in Los Alamos. The General Accounting Office noted in an Air Force report that a B-17 airplane detected radioactive debris from one of the tests as far as 70 miles away. Over the town of Watrous, New Mexico, but it is unlikely that any significant risks extended to this distance. The Human Studies Project team concluded, however, that the cloud could not have gone as far as claimed at the time of the observation, and suggests that the atmospheric conductivity apparatus used by the Air Force was sensitive to effects other than radioactivity. 
Los Alamos has not attempted to reconstruct the doses to the Bayou Canyon chemists. Using data from one of the reports, however, it would appear that the total exposure for these chemists was high enough to place these individuals at some increased risk for developing a radiation-induced cancer. Other intentional releases. No risk estimates are available for the other releases the committee has studied, and aside from DOE's Idaho National Engineering Laboratory, no dose reconstructions have been undertaken. It does appear, however, that the human health risks were small, even compared with the minimal risks of the intentional releases discussed above, and with other, more familiar exposures to radioactivity in the environment. See the accompanying table, Magnitude of Radioactive Releases. End of section 57.